0: This, your genes, your DNA, it's not as hard to influence as geneticists would tend to make you believe. It's not that, you know, you can change it. The things that happen to you in your life will modify your DNA. A lot of what if I wanna to be modify.
1: 25 again?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we can't turn that clock back, but you know, you can be pretty close to 25 again in your own mind, in your attitude, the way you think, the way you feel, even the way you walk, the way you stand, uh, your coordination, your flexibility. You can act, you know, you can be stronger, faster, and uh, and smarter than a lot of 25-year-olds. Not a problem. And you can look a lot younger than other people your age. But you're still going to get older, and you're still, you know, that's part of the biology. You can do that. Now, if you have strong enough of an intent and strong enough of a mind, you can modify that biology and you might live a much longer time or you may be able to do something strange like, uh, you know, live and be healthy without eating any food. You know, there's things like that that can happen, but they're in the margins. But you have to have a very strong intent to be able to modify the rule set and the biology to let those things happen and the system only encourages it enough to make it be uh, kind of a a lesson or a helper for everybody else. It's not something that everybody's going to do, you see. So if every one of us said, well, we're going to all go train, you know, so that we can live on light, well, that wouldn't work for everybody. But now if a few people do that because they make these really grand examples for the rest of us and show us what the mind can do, well, that's good. The system will work with that. But in general, you have to obey the rule set you can't break the rule set except when you're allowed to break the rule set to be a good example for somebody else. So that's the thing about a digital computed reality. It is so flexible. There's so much you can do with it. It's not fixed and and, it's not stuck anywhere. You can do almost anything. We can Photoshop ourselves.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right? Pretty
0: much. Yeah. If you have an intent, you'll do that. You know, for instance, five years ago uh, i don't know if it was that it probably was about five years ago i noticed i'm 73 now so i was 60 something then 60 what seven and 68 and anyway i noticed that see you're getting old you know i'd sit in a big chair and i'd have trouble getting up out of it you know the kind you sink into And I used to pop out of those and I think now I'm kind of, you know, I'm going to like this and, you know, I have to push my way out. And uh, I noticed that my hair was getting thin. You know, I'd see videos of myself and there was my scalp showing, you know, and I noticed a whole lot of things like that. I didn't have the balance I used to have. I used to be able to stand on one foot, you know, put on my socks, do all kinds of things, just standing on one foot. Now I have to go sit down. You know, there was just lots of things. And I said, whoa, you know, what's with that? Let's turn that around and i couldn't see as well i couldn't uh, read small print and that started that's presbyopia it starts when you're about 45 years old your arms get too short right you no longer can stretch that arm out far enough to get the print far enough away from you that you can focus on it well that just happens at 45 and that had happened to me at 45 and uh, hadn't got a lot worse but it got a little worse over time so five years later i can read small print my hair isn't nearly as thin I can jump up out of chairs. All of that signs of old age just disappeared. It's just intense. I'm not blowing you smoke modify. up,
1: up your, your butt here. You actually have a very young appearance. Like we noticed when we watched videos of you at the very beginning when Beth uh, showed us who you were, we noticed like the skin on your hands did not look like the, uh, the hands of a 70-year-old. You looked more... Well, 69,
0: Useful. no, just kidding, <laughs> M- much
1: more youthful.
0: <laughs> well, I feel that way. Uh, yeah, I work out, you know, I exercise, I try to eat well, you know, I do all those things. And, you know, it's it's a use it or lose it sort of thing. And I have a positive intent. So if you do that, then you actually can grow younger. You can change things that happen. There's lots of uncertainty in growing old and you can modify within that uncertainty of of what's going on. So it does, you know, you do have a lot of control over what you do. Let's say somebody uh, is born and they have low serotonin, so they take Prozac or something to help boost their serotonin, and they've got an idea that, uh, well, that's just like, uh, you know, not having enough... uh, Uh, whatever is insulin, you know, so you have to take shots of insulin. You just, your biology gave you low serotonin, now you gotta take something to to help fix it. But you can modify the amount of serotonin that your body generates just with using your intent, by being positive, by being uh, you know, very up, by not, by by getting rid of your fear. All of that will boost your serotonin all by itself. See, you can work out of problems like that, so you should never feel like you're a slave to your biology. Oh, you know, I just can't do things because of my biology. Well, yeah, some things are like that. Let's say you are only five foot two. Well, you're probably no matter how much you focus on it, you're probably never going to be, you know, five foot three or four or five or six or six feet tall. That's just the way it is. You know, you're going to be short. Well, okay, learn to live with that. Deal with it. Make the most of it. Capitalize on it. Turn it into an asset. You see, that's the thing. Don't feel bad about yourself because you're short.
1: Kind of like Al Pacino said in where he played the devil. He said, "They never see me coming." That was his line, like being short and not being attractive or whatever. Worked he, for him. Yeah, he told the the character played by Keanu Reeves. He said, "I have the greatest time because they never see me coming." I thought that was a good line. Yeah.
2: I, ha- I have a question. I want to slip in here. So, the purpose of life is to grow up and become love, and that's uh, affecting our individuated consciousness unit, or unit of consciousness. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it also possible to evolve our biology, and in that way further the evolution of humanity? As you're talking about affecting your DNA through intent, then that would make it easier for our offspring and our ancestors is that something that you think yep. is
0: It's possible but but not so likely because the real growth comes out of dealing with whatever it is you've got the real growth comes out not with being a superior you know vehicle or superior avatar the growth comes from the what you do with what you've got so the, 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 the equation for growth is stuff happens and you get to deal with it. You know, that's, that's life in a nutshell. Stuff happens, you get to deal with it. Maybe that stuff is that you're short or maybe that you're mentally retarded or maybe you don't have any arms, but or maybe your neighbors are, you know, berserkers and, you know, scream all night or whatever. Whatever it is, stuff happens, you get to deal with it. And you evolve or de-evolve based on how you deal with it. If you deal with it with love and caring and so on, then you'll grow. You'll become, you know, higher quality conscious. If you deal with it with anger and annoyance and and, uh, violence or whatever, ego, belief, then you will de-evolve. So it doesn't matter so much the platform you start with. It doesn't really matter... Uh, you know, that you were born in Biafra, you know, and, and everybody was starving. It doesn't matter so much that you were born in a family where you inherit, you know, $100 million, you know, when you when you turn 18. That's really not the point or that your body is big and strong and athletic or that your body is kind of weak and tend to be sickly. It's not the point. The point is, what do you get? What can you learn from it? So we want just a whole lot of very different situations to learn from. If all of our situations were with perfectly healthy, athletic, wonderful bodies, we'd miss a lot of those choices that you have to make when you're the little person that really can't ever get on the team. That's a thing to deal with, you see. And if you deal with that correctly, you grow up from it. So we want diversity in our experience. Diversity is a wonderful thing. So we want all kinds of experience. We want experience is where we're you know, where we're too short, we want experiences maybe when we're too tall, we want experiences when we're athletic, and experiences when, we, when we're when we not. You know, we're born with a pear-shaped body or something, and that's just it. We're never going to be good at sports because we're just not made right. Well, we have to learn, what are you going to do with that? Make good decisions with that. So we don't want to make everything Uniform, everything better. Everybody, you know, we let's say we do some genetic engineering and we make everybody strong and has, you know, 2015 vision and everybody's a genius and everybody's this and that. That's not going to help our growing up. We're better off in a system where there's lots of diversity, lots of different ways to learn things. So, diversity is a really Good thing just like it is in our virtual reality, you know diversity is good for us because we see other points of view See other you know ways that people live and look and, and are so diversity is good in the non-physical as well So I don't think we'd want to do that, but yes you could you can affect your Your biology if you really 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 wanted to have a, a you know a, a child who, that, who was blonde well, you could probably put a lot of effort in that and raise the probability of having a child who was blonde, you know, by a large amount. You'd probably get a pretty you know, probably good probability you'd get that. So you can do those kinds of things if you want, but there's not really a lot of profit in it because it's not about the physical stuff and the way that physical stuff's arranged, it's what you do with it. What what choices do you make because of it? That's the thing. So if you get a tough one where you get, let's say you get a retarded, uh, you're playing a retarded person, and you're the you're the consciousness. Well, there's a lot of things to notice there. There's a lot of relationship stuff. There's a lot of internal dialogue going on. There's there's other things that you have to be aware of and you have to understand. There's a lot of humility and there's a lot of don't feel sorry for yourself and don't feel bad about yourself and be, you know, be who you are and accept it. Well, those are some tough lessons. You know, you could learn a lot in that kind of a configuration. So we have all this probability in, in how all the genes and the chromosomes all get together. And it's probabilistic. And there's always going to be people out under the tails of that probability distribution. So most of us will be what we call physically normal. But there's going to be some out under the tails of the curve that are going to be challenged with getting along with... Uh, you know, with, with relationships, with all sorts of things, and they're valuable to play, too. It's not like, well, who'd want to who'd play a cripple? Well, no, there's, a, there's some value in playing a cripple, particularly if you were real arrogant and were a real, uh, you know, macho guy last time and pushed everybody around and beat your chest and, you know, thought you were really terrific. Maybe a cripple is just the right thing for you next time. See things from a little different perspective. So you get the, different, get the opposite view of that. So everybody's useful. Every situation's useful. There isn't any situation that you can't learn from. So that's kind of the beauty of it. So, okay, you get born into a family that's dysfunctional, and they all holler at each other. There's very little love there. They're all self-centered. Well, you get to deal with that. How do you deal with it? And you always hear these stories. You know, there was a young lady who uh, was giving a speech, and, her both of her parents were drug addicts. But evidently they hold it they held it together enough to keep their children. So she grew up with two drug addict parents who were mostly in a you know comatose, you know, at home most of the time because they were taking so many drugs. So she was the older of the sister. She raised, you know, her siblings, took on a lot of responsibility, knew that the one thing she would never touch was drugs got a got a uh, you know scholarship to college got a graduate degree and I went off to do things so she came out of one of those dysfunctional families that you'd think would sprout nothing but uh, people who'd end up in jail but it wasn't like that she made choices and she got through it and it actually made her a a better fuller more grown up person for the choices she made and what she was able to overcome so you see you have that possibility too so there's there's always ways to to learn and grow. All right, most people uh, maybe wouldn't have made those good choices. But they could have made some choices and they would no doubt learn from it in any case. But the system can't change what's here. See, we create this mess. We create who we are. Okay, you got a family full of drug addicts. Well, that's their choice. It was their free will choice that took them to that spot. Well, now they have to live with it. Their children have to live with it. Their parents have to live with it. Everybody has to deal with it, and how they deal with it is what's important. So you see, it all it all works. The system didn't kind of come down and say, oh, we don't want any drug addict parents. That's not nice. Let's let's delete that and heal their heal their whatever." The system doesn't play with the game like that. It's not interfering and rearranging things. It will in the margins, inside of uncertainty, do things in such a way that nobody notices that will help somebody learn or grow up. But it never, it never abrogates somebody else's free will. That's a that's a no-no for the system. It doesn't come in and make decisions for somebody else. It always just gives you opportunities and choices that you have to you have to have your own choice and your own free will. Now, it may give you an opportunity. It's just, really man, put an opportunity right in front of you, but you still have to grab it. You have to make that choice that you take it or that you pass it up. And that's your choice. And if you pass it up and it was a wonderful opportunity, well, that was your choice. You know, you get the consequences of that choice. So the system can do that. It can place opportunities in front of you or even take opportunities away from you. You know, it can. it can do that but it won't make your choices for you. And if you make bad choices, it won't fix that for you. It's uh, the free will is kind of sacred. You don't uh, get in front of anybody else's free will. They are what they are. And this world as gross as it is, it's what we made it. It's a, it's a very accurate representation of the quality of consciousness in humanity today. That's the world we live in. It's us. It's, it's our, it's the reflection of us so uh, and we're all down here struggling trying to do the best we can with what we've got so you know we just things get better well that creates you know that's good things get worse well that creates more lessons too you know sometimes people have to get to that dark night of the soul before they start headed in the upward direction they've got to crash first you know so you might have to go through a period of fascism before you uh, value democracy you know it's just Depends. There's lessons in everything so you don't look at things and say oh that's awful and that's bad and you know that needs to be changed. It's like well that's not nice and if I could actually just change it I would but I can't. All I can do is change myself so I'll either try to make it a better environment so it can grow up or I'll just accept it the way it is and it's just more lessons for more people. Maybe it'll help. Maybe in the long run you know going through that bad time will be a benefit. You know, sometimes it's the parents who refuse to bail their child out of jail, you know, that actually help their child the most. Because that child maybe needs to see more of the consequences and not always have somebody to pick them back up and be an enabler for their bad behavior. So you have to look at the long term and say, what's the low entropy solution here, you know, for the long term? And that's what you do. And no matter how ugly it gets out there, well, it's the way it is. That's people. That's us. I hope they learn from it If they don't well they'll get another chance and if they still don't well they'll get another chance and so on you know and that's just the game we're in
1: and that's kind of what goes through my mind and we've talked about this with many people when you look at what's happening on the world stage it's really difficult to watch but as you said You can't really do anything to change it, but because it is in our faces what is going on, it forces us to go deeper inside of ourselves and to see the mirror. Like, okay, what aspects of what I don't like in this other person do I still find in myself? And by having it in our faces collectively, it's maybe forcing us to collectively get our shift together (laughs) and change things in a much quicker way. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can learn. We learn from mistakes. We learn from our dysfunction. Well, we should learn. (laughs) We don't always learn, you know, but we should learn. And many people do learn but it may take them four or five times to figure that out, or the dysfunction may have to get even more painful before they pay attention. But eventually we do get it and we do go on. So if we look at ourselves, humanity over the last 200,000 years, okay, that's about when modern humans, you know, got up and walked around on two legs and kind of looked and thought a lot like us. Those last 200,000 years, we can see growth. We can see kinder, gentler, uh, more cooperative, all the way along. But it's slow. It's very slow. But it is getting better. If you just go back 300 years ago, go back to the 16th century or the 15th century, you know, so go back 500 years ago or something and look at what life was like. Look how cheap life was. You know, look how hard life was. Look how little anybody thought of anybody else. Oh, sure, there's always little pockets of, you know, enlightenment here and there. But in general, if you just look at the world, this is a lot better the way we have it now. There's a lot more opportunity the way we have it now. So things have gotten better. So, yes, we look at the news and we look at the world and I say, wow, what a, you know, what a mess, all that dysfunction. But actually, in historical terms, we're doing better. And I think in the near term, we're going to have a chance to take some big steps. Because we finally got all the right pieces together to enable some big steps to be taken. So you know now whether we actually grab that opportunity and do it, yeah, and the internet is a key part of that. The internet's a key part. There's always been these little bubbles of enlightenment all sorts of places. You know, for in every millennia in almost every you know country or every landmass, there've been people who get it, whether it's a, a shaman, you know, and a In an Indian tribe or whether it's, uh, you know, the Buddha who said that this is an illusion, this reality is an illusion. Well, to me, that's saying it's a virtual reality. You know, it's it's not what it appears to be. It's something else. It's just an illusion. Well, we've always had people who got it, but they've always been relegated to the margins. They've never really broken out to be mainstream. It's not a lesson that most people were ready to learn yet. And until you're
1: ready. Or if they did get in you're the mainstream, the they got killed.
0: Right. If they did get in the mainstream, they got run over. Right. So that was then. And that's been true up until we had an Internet. Now, today, you know, a billion people will get big news, you know, within a couple of days. It's just the world is much smaller place. And as the world gets smaller and smaller, humanity is going to start acting more and more like a family. Yes, a dysfunctional family at first, but it's got, you know, it's got some room to, to grow. And I think the internet's part of it. And the other part of it is is having a, an understanding of the nature of reality, why we're here, you know, what the point is, um, that we're here to to grow up and become love. And if we really understood that in a deep way, through even half the population, it would make a huge difference. And I see that as a possibility now too, uh, partly because of the way uh, um, science is being pushed, kicking and screaming to the idea of a computed reality, to a, a reality based on information, which is going to lead to the virtual reality, which is going to lead to consciousness is the computer, which is going to lead to love is the answer. These are all just, simple logical steps and no it won't happen that quickly but it's there it's the right answer it's logical it's the only thing that makes sense and I think we'll get there well I know we'll get there because evolution may be slow but it is persistent it just keeps chugging on and this is our this is what we're supposed to do that's why we're here as humans we're supposed to evolve as a human race to where we interact with each other with love and kindness and cooperation. That's our mission here. That's what our individu- individuated units of consciousness are trying to learn and grow to be able to do in this game, that it can end up with a game where all the elves and barbarians and wizards <laughs> and monsters can all hang out together, you know, in the world of Warcraft and you know and all be one big happy family. That's that's like where we're headed. And because that is the direction of evolution, we will get there. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take. Is it going to take another 200,000 years, you know, or does it only going to take another two decades? Well, before, we never had the infrastructure to actually do it because we were too fragmented. We were too, you know, isolated. Ideas didn't travel well, um, but not the case anymore, not the case. So we have the tools now for, for uh kind of amazing growth spurt here in the 21st century. And maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but at least it's possible now.
1: Using your metaphor of virtual reality and talking about these computer games that uh, people play, what is your opinion of the games that are excessively violent? I used to donate my time at the local youth center and it got to the point that i had to walk away from it because they had this big 52 inch screen and it was all about guts and blood splattering on the screen and it was you know the point of view of someone murdering a bunch of people how does that have a positive impact on people who are playing those kinds of games. And I know well, I'm stretching it. Like I, I know you're using yeah. this as as an explor or an explanation of the virtual reality, but when I heard that, I'm just being honest, when I heard that, I was instantly thinking of these violent games that were pushed into my face and how can this be a benefit? How can people uh, playing these games, how can they move toward love when the focus is entirely about killing?
0: Yes, that uh, you know, virtual reality can come in many, many forms, and there are virtual realities actually much like ours in the larger conscious system. Um, you know, other worlds, if you will, other virtual realities with tight rule sets like this one, and some of them are very violent. Some of them are like that. Some of them are, uh, you know, in between. Some of them are sort of like us. But there's, I've been in a dozen of these different realities and spent enough time there to get a sense of what they're like. So you do have places where bad choices have, have taken over to the point that it's going to have to spiral down to the point that it is so bad for everybody that it starts going the other way. You know, that's free will. We'll do that. Okay, but what about us in our society? And we create these these uh, games that are nothing more than, or very little more than, just destruction. Well, there's a couple of things there. One, it's a a symptom of our own low quality of consciousness that the game gets created in the first place. It's another symptom of our low quality of consciousness that it becomes very popular. Okay, So if we didn't have such a low quality of consciousness, it would never have been written, never have been published, and if it had been, nobody would have paid any attention to it. So again, that's a reflection of us, that that game exists and is popular just tells us about the average you know, low quality of consciousness in humanity here. So it's a, it's, a, it's a representation of us. So in a way, you know, it's, a, it's not so much that it's going to force us downward, which it probably will some, as it is that it's a, it's a symbol of who we are and what we are so kids now you do that now kids know that they're playing a game and not real life it's not going to make a kid you know grab up a gun and shoot everybody around that's not why those atrocities happen they happen for other reasons mostly you know frustration and anger and and other sorts of things but not just because somebody watched a video game they don't go shoot people they know the difference between a video game and the real world what it does do that isn't it isn't good It desensitizes them to horrific and nasty things. You know, I think the, I read someplace that the average child, by the time they are 12 years old, has seen something like, you know, 257 murders, you know, of course on TV, you know, well, that's pretty horrific experience for somebody, you know, from, you know, from being a toddler you know, to being a 12-year-old, they're not yet grown up enough to put that in perspective. So yes, that does have effect on somebody's reality. You go to a horror movie and you sit down and you watch something horrible. You know, there's always the girl who has her clothes half torn off, you know, hiding in the closet and you can hear the footsteps and the creak of the door and, you know, they get all that stuff and people in the audience, they get goosebumps and they get frightened. Well, that's fear. And what that fear does is it makes it easier to have more fear? It makes you more frightened of the night and you know the things that go bump in the night. It's not healthy. So I would even go so far as to say that you know if you talk about um, you know what what the brain does is that the brain sets constraints on the consciousness. Well, you watch movies like that, you just set more constraints on the consciousness of what it has to work with, and I call that brain damage. So people go in and watch those things. They're actually hurting themselves in a in a, a physical way. They actually modify their own brain chemistry in such a way as to make them more susceptible to fear. So it's a it's a damaging thing. And kids that play violent games make themselves not sensitive to horrible things. If it doesn't happen to them or somebody they know, then eh, who cares? And we were all like that. You know, before we had an Internet, then, you know, oh, there's a bunch of people starving someplace. Or before we had a TV, and even before we had radio, well, nobody paid much attention. Yeah, somewhere in the world there's a war or somebody's, you know, a lot of people are dying. And, yeah, that's not nice, but, you know, yeah, give me another coffee, please. You know, we, we weren't really, we didn't really care about it very much. So that's kind of typical. And these kids now are, you know, seeing people being blown to bits and, and going around murdering and so on, and, and uh, so they get desensitized. And they probably hear about it in the news or something, and they may just think, yeah, you know, stuff like that happens. It's a tough world out there, but it also makes them more fearful. in their own In their own mind, these things happen. In their own mind, these ugly things are more real than they were before they played that game. So just like going to see the horror movie, they're setting themselves up to be more fearful more easily, you know. So they're setting themselves up to create fear, to accept fear, to embrace it when maybe otherwise they wouldn't have, because they've seen all this horrific stuff and been a part of it. So no, it's not good for them. It's not healthy. It's a very bad use of virtual reality, but it is a reflection of just who we are. So there's not much you can do about it. On the other hand, uh, things like World of Warcraft, well, that's mostly a fighting game, but the fighting is very cartoonish, you know, and there's no blood that splatters ever and that kind of stuff. It's it's more of a cartoonish thing and the people know they're playing a game and for that part, I don't think that is a is really a problem, even the fact that it's mostly a, you know, a, a fighting or, or struggle game. It's, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, it probably would be better if they were doing maybe something else with their time. But I don't find that a really big problem. I think most kids can do that kind of stuff. Put it in its own place, and none of it is really scary. You see, it doesn't create fear. It's not a scary thing. It's not a. It's not a horrible thing. All the violence is all make believe. It's all pretend. There's no. Uh, you know, there's no graphic stuff going on in it. So I think that's okay. Kids are just experiencing thing, you know. Males are into power and, and fighting and stuff that's in our DNA, that's in our structure. That's what we did. You know, we protected our wives and children. We protected our tribes, and that was how we survived. So we've got a lot of that, uh, that fighting instinct, and to work that out in video games, it's probably better than working it out any other way. So I don't mind that too much. And that's why those games are pretty much boy games. You know, the girls play them some, but they never really get, you know, real into that game. They have their own games that they can get into. So that's not a problem. But some of them are. I've seen also some that were that were like that. And my children never had any of those. Uh, whether they played them in other places, I don't know. But I think particularly after we got homeschooling and they got out of the mob mentality in the public school, I think they would have turned away from those games. They would have found them kind of disquieting and unsettling and not nice and wouldn't want to play them. That would be my guess. None of them play that kind of stuff now, although they all do play video games, but uh, not anything like that. I think they just reject that as not being something they'd want to do. Yeah. So So the thing is, if you want to save the world – The most important contribution you can make to saving the world is to grow yourself up because you're the only person you can change. And as you grow up, you help everybody else around you that interacts with you grow up. So that's the biggest thing you can do. And people think that, oh, the way we need to change the world, we need to get rid of that politician, get rid of that dictator, get rid of these mean corporate bosses who are ripping everybody off. Those people just represent us. You can get rid of them. But within a short time, somebody just like that'll be back in that position because that's a reflection of us. So all of that stuff is symptoms. The bad politicians, the you know, the, the bad actors on the scene, the people that want to manipulate everybody and take their money and whatever. That's just us. And until we change that, these are nothing but symptoms. So you'd never cure a problem by tra- you know, by trying to fix the symptoms. And that's what it is when you try to change those things. Now Education, yes. Things you're doing, trying to educate people, see bigger picture. You know, that's important. And if you want to carry a sign and say, you know, these politicians are all crooked, fine, get out there and do it. That's education. But when it comes to fixing things with violence, all you're doing is perpetuating a system. You're not really fixing anything. And my philosophy is not a pacifist philosophy. There's a time to fight back, no doubt but that's that's the small part of the time you know mostly fighting and violence is not the way to the optimal solution for the you know the highest quality good for everybody it typically is not it just seems like it so though that can be an option under some circumstances it's a, it's the last thing to try and generally it's not something you have to try very often Mm-hmm.
2: We've had that argument a few times because I I have to say I probably am mostly a pacifist. I, I just feel like if I have to come to a place of fighting against something, I have to be able to do it from a place of ultimate love. And in that situation, you're almost always able to find a different solution
0: exactly you are but sometimes you're not that's the point I would agree You almost always you should not fight fighting is the last thing to do it's the last resort and if there's any other way that other way will be better but sometimes there is no other way Uh, here would be an example Let's say that you live in a small village and it's a circle of little straw houses of maybe 20 of them. And some violent people come from maybe a hostile tribe or something else. And they start at one hut and they go in and they kill everybody in that hut. Then they move on to the next one. They kill everybody in that hut. Their intent is to kill everybody in the village and you notice what's going on and you see what happened in those first two huts and you know what their intention is. Well, when they get to your hut, it's the wrong thing to do to just say I'm nonviolent and whatever you should do whatever you can to stop them because otherwise everybody in the village is going to die so now you have to stand up not for yourself but for others speak out of love for those that you know that are going to be harmed if you don't take action so in that case then you have to be violent. You have to stand there at the door with the frying pan and you know hit one over the head hard enough to break his skull when he steps through the door. You have to raise a ruckus that would maybe uh, alert other people you know, to come out and protect themselves. You have to do something other than just be a pacifist. You need to size up the situation, decide what you can do, and do as much as you can without thought of whether or not you're going to get hurt in the process. It's about others, not about you. So in that case, you see, it's a it's a case where violence is required. Not only is it an option, it's the right option. It's a good option. Uh, otherwise, you're just giving up everybody else to the same to the same fate as the first two. You see, again, it's not actions. Morality is not attached to actions. It's attached to intentions. So you can get to a point where it is time to stand up. If there's a bully bullying, you know, if you see a, you know, if you see a, a bully. Bullying uh, little kids. Let's say you see a, you know, a, a, an eighth grader and he's bullying third graders and he's pushing them around and you know, taking their lunch money and stuff. And you're an adult. Well, you need to intervene. You need to walk in and say, no, cut that out. And if you have to, you need to grab him up by the shirt and drag him into the principal's office and say, here's what I found out on the, you know, on the, on the playground. So there are times when force is the right answer. And most of the time it's the wrong answer. But occasionally it's the right answer and you, you do need to jump in. This idea of, well it's not my problem, those aren't my kids that are getting bullied, uh, you know it's not my problem, I'll just walk on. That's the wrong choice. You'll do the most good for the most people by stepping into that and not letting that go any further. So there's you know, so it happens. So you can't I don't think pacifism really works but it's a good idea most of the time. <laughs> I would agree with you, most of the time, probably 99% of all the you know, situations we get into, being kind and gentle and caring is the right way. But again, moral moral choice is not is not based on doing, it's based on intent.
1: What do you do when you've got a bully that is trying to kick people out of the country? it's a yeah, it's the same. similar situation but you, on a grander scale
0: sure you do what you can do and the situation may be that you can't do anything let's say that that uh, let's say you're in a situation where the bully is um, you know the dictator of your country or the bully is the principal of the school you know and he's hollering at kids and you know it's very inappropriate for him to be hollering at kids like that but it's his position and his authority Do you go in and grab him by the shirt and shake him and tell him to quit? Probably not. What if he's a policeman? You know, what if he's uh, whatever? You know, well, you feel you'll probably fail in that. If you go and grab the policeman and tell him to quit, he'll hit you in the head with a stick and you will be in jail for interfering with a policeman and there's not going to be any advantage to anybody. You're going to lose, you see. So you have to look at the situation and see, what can I do here? And sometimes it's nothing. Best thing I can do here is to just you know stay out of that maybe the best thing you can do is to educate people so that they see it as a terrible thing sometimes you know maybe it's your vote if you get a chance to to do that but whatever it is you have to decide what you can do about it that will make the most positive contribution in the long run and just getting yourself hit in the head with a stick by the policeman is not a great contribution even though you stood up to him and whatever and you get hit What's the long-term good that comes out of that? Well, okay, maybe you set a good example, but maybe you didn't. Maybe you just instilled more fear in everybody else because they saw just what happens to you if you start to mess with that authority. You get you get bludgeoned, and then you get thrown in jail, and then maybe you disappear, and nobody ever sees you again. So you've maybe just demonstrated something that makes everybody else more fearful. So you have to look at the long-term effects of your actions and act according to to that. What can you do that is the most meaningful, that'll do most good to the most people, you know, in the long term, and then do that. So sometimes there's not much we can do about it. Coming
1: coming from your deepest place. I mean, in the spur of the moment, you have to just go with your gut and just do the right thing. And sometimes, like you say, the right thing is to just shut up and do nothing.
0: Sometimes. But you always do that, and people should not be afraid to act because they're not sure what the best action is. That will paralyze you with uncertainty. So you whatever your situation is, you you if you're if you have gotten rid of your fear and gotten rid of your ego, you will come from that good place and you will be making choices for the right reasons, for the right intents. Well, in that case, you just do the best you can to what you think is the best thing and do it and if it turns out that wasn't such a good thing to do well you have learned something if it turns out it's a good thing to do good so either way you should be better off okay and that's the way we deal with life if we had to wait until we were sure what the long-term entropy would be nobody would ever do anything because how do you know what the long-term entry change is going to be you never know so you always have to just you know make your choice and let's say you are full of fear and full of beliefs. Well, you'll do the same thing. You'll make your choice. you got to do it. And then hopefully you'll learn from it. Because if you worked out of fear and ego and belief, chances are you just made everything worse, not better. And you should learn from that and say, oh, I, that didn't work out too well. It's the way I felt. It made me madder than hell. And I just jumped in there and did that. But in the long term, I see that really wasn't too helpful. Well, then learn something. you know. But don't not act. You got to be who you are. You have to be authentic. And whoever you are, however grown you are, that's where you are. And that's where you have to take your action from. But as long as you learn from your mistakes, then you shouldn't regret, you know, the actions that you take. You look at them and say, well, I I learned from that. I'm not going to make that mistake again. The problem is, and what what is the the difficulty here is most people don't learn from their mistakes. They do something, they see it's dysfunctional, it doesn't work, and then they go do it again. And it still does dysfunctional, it doesn't work, so they go and do it again. And that's the problem, you see. But if you are aware enough to look at yourself, and if you can see it without that ego, see the ego will tell you, well, you were right and everybody else was wrong. Well, okay, it didn't seem to work out too well, but it wasn't your fault. It's because everybody else was screwed up. You say, so you never learn anything. That's why I say when you get rid of your fears, it gets easier and easier and easier because suddenly your choices get better. Your life gets happier. Everything just works better. It's that that fear that makes everything not work so well. But I tell people, don't get paralyzed with indecision because you don't know what the right answer is. Do your best you can. Be authentic. If that's you, then Make up your mind, do what you have to do, and now pay attention to how it works out and learn from it. And eventually, you'll be where you want to be. So we shouldn't be timid. We should be bold. But we need to be bold and we need to be skeptical. The, one, the person you have to be most skeptical about yourself, always be skeptical about yourself, doesn't mean you're not resolute and you're not going to you're not going to do what you have to do, but you always have to look back with some skepticism. Of, was that a good thing or not? Where did that come from? Why did I act that way? And if it was out of anger, you probably will regret it because almost all things done in anger are things that you wish you hadn't have done.
1: If more of us did this, it would not only have an impact on our individual lives, it would have an impact on the collective and ultimately would affect the beautiful garden that we live on
0: absolutely yes all those institutions that we fault for being part of the problem you know the the the, the power the power brokers the people who have lots of uh, lots of authority and power and we say oh that's where the problem is those things would just change if we the people change if we grow up all those institutions will just change themselves because they reflect us. So if we're grown up, those, you know, those nasty uh, corporations or politicians or you know, whomever that we think of as, as being part of the problem, they will all reflect us too. And they will be better. And their attitudes will change. The whole thing will change. So it's not like we have to fix the symptoms first before we fix the cause. That's backwards. We gotta fix the cause first. And when we fix the cause, the symptoms will go away. So that's how you change the world, is by fixing the cause, which is a low quality of consciousness, which is just the thing that you two guys are doing with your program. That's why you're doing this. That's why you're having these you know discussions. That's why you send them out to the world. That's why you try to get as large an audience as you can, because by doing this, you're being part of the solution. It's education. You're helping people see things a different way. And if you make just one other person out there grow up, the lets go of some of their fear and all the work and expense was worth it. That's you know, that's that's worth it. Because that person will change more people who will change more people. So you just keep doing what you're doing because you know that's what you want to do and that's what you have to do. So it's just the way it is just the way it is. So, you know, you're you're trying to do that, and so are lots of other people. And before we didn't have the way to do that. We had lots of other people who were more grown up, but it was hard for them to make a difference anywhere except just within 10 or 20 people they interacted with. Now you can make a difference in 10 or 20,000 people that you interact with. So much more powerful. People are hungry for something better. And if they hear you present a, a thing or talk or do a blog and if it resonates with them and they say, Oh, that's better, that's a better way to go. It's a better feeling. I wish I was that positive. I wish I didn't get angry like that all the time. You know, That's all it takes. It's just help somebody else see something better. And uh, now you're a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. And we've never had an ability to spread a solution like we have now. And that's why there's literally thousands, tens of thousands of blogs and other things going. And some of them, of course, are trashy. But there's a lot of them that are actually good. People are trying to make a difference and it all adds up you know it all adds up together nobody's going to do it by themselves all of it has to add up to make it to make it work so we're we're getting there we've got you know i've got hopes for this uh next couple of decades that maybe we can grow up more than we have for the last two hundred thousand years and do it in a shorter amount of time because we now have the tools to do it well, it may take us another 100 years or 200 years. I don't know. But I think we'll get there now that it's possible, now that we have the tools. Evolution doesn't give up. Now, people, we may blow us all the smithereens back to the Stone Age, and it may be another 100,000 years before we get back to here. But that's all right. Eventually, we're going to get there, and we will form this bigger, better thing that's a cooperative, happy, love-based culture in humanity because that's where evolution is taking us everything else is self-destructive so sooner or later we'll get there i just hope it's sooner <laughs> not not later